Screening is still absolutely an important piece of the puzzle. Philosophically, though, the point of screening is probably not to predict injury, but really to identify those who are at an increased risk and therefore implement or we can implement a targeted intervention to reduce that risk. So we can use these prospective risk factor studies to identify factors that increase risk at a population level, but I would just caution the listeners against using cut points to predict who's going to fall over because you're going to be wrong an awful lot of the time. Can we prevent hamstring injuries? That's the question Dr. Matthew Bourne answered for us today. Now, Matthew's from Griffith University. He's done a PhD in hamstring injury prevention, and he has a mission to conduct world-class research. Now, he actually started there in the research. How clinically relevant are our hamstring tests? And then he progressed us through the episode on strengthening and some potential theories on why eccentric strengthening may work and finished beautifully on how different exercises can target different areas of the hamstring stream. Please enjoy this episode. My name is Michael Risk and this is Physio Explained. Hi, Matthew, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Michael. Uh, Thanks for having me. You've done a masterclass, an awesome masterclass actually, on hamstrings and particularly injury prevention. So if people haven't tried that, they can go to our show notes and give that a trial for free, but we're going to just zoom in on a couple of points. I thought I would start with, do any of our screening tests predict future injury? What can you tell us about that? It's sort of a million-dollar question, and I think over the last couple of decades, we've seen a a real increase in the amount of prospective risk factor studies in the hamstring injury space. That research has really advocated, I think, the two main reasons, to help understand why injuries happen and then potentially to predict who is at risk. And I think these concepts often get a little confused. Given the nature of a screening test encompasses or typically tests performance on a continuous scale, say from strength, if you take strength as an example, from low to high, we often see a lot of overlap between athletes who have high and and low risk of injury. As a researcher, you might look at things like the area under the curve in these models. This represents the ability of the model to correctly classify subsequently injured and, and uninjured athletes, for example, off a screening test. But if you look at these uh, risk factor studies, the area under the curve, typically closer to 0.5, and you can think of that as sort of 50% or or tossing a coin, they're much closer to 0.5 than 1, which would be perfect prediction. So you're going to be wrong more often than you're right. Interestingly enough, the ability to predict who's at risk doesn't seem to be improved by increased measurement frequency either. And we've done a recent large-scale study in the Australian Football League exploring this. I think I'd, I'd really encourage listeners to have a look at Roald Barr's 2016 paper as well on how to develop a, a screening test and it steps you through the process. Interestingly enough, it highlights how none of the screening tests in the hamstring injury space or, or really across anything in sports medicine have ever been appropriately developed and validated. So that's a, a real limitation that we're dealing with. The final point I'd touch on though is Screening is still absolutely an important piece of the puzzle. Philosophically, though, the point of screening is probably not to predict injury, but really to identify those who are at an increased risk and therefore implement, or we can implement a targeted intervention to reduce that risk. So we can use these prospective risk factor studies to identify factors that increase risk at a population level. But I would just caution the listeners against using 
cut points to predict who's going to fall over because you're going to be wrong an awful lot of the time. That's super interesting. So you're effectively at a coin flip. What are some of the common tests that you see clinicians doing or that the research tries to investigate? A lot of the tests that we would advocate are things that measure potentially modifiable factors. The ones that are probably of most use are those that measure hamstring strength in some capacity or structure. So we've given that injuries happen typically during forceful eccentric contractions like terminal swing phase of running. We focus on eccentric strength a lot of the time and have developed some field tests to measure this. So that's one common test. The other structural measure that we look at a lot of the time is fascicle length of the biceps femoris long head. So we've done some couple of prospective studies now in Australian football and soccer showing that measures of biceps fem fascicle length are associated with subsequent injuries. So those athletes with shorter fascicles seem to be more susceptible to sustaining an injury. Again, though, there's huge overlap in the numbers, I should say. And so the cut points aren't ever designed to be used as a, a predictor for if you're above this, you're safe, and you're below this, you're going to fall over. But they really provide information at a population level that we can then design interventions around. I got curious, with how do you measure those two things? So that you mentioned eccentric strength and fascicle length. How are you doing that? Is that something more for researchers or could we do that as clinicians? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, traditionally, we were confined to lab-based measures like isokinetic dynamometry. More recently, we've seen the development of a, a number of field-based tests. So the Nord board is one example, which was developed by Associate Professor Tony Shield and Dave Opar through his PhD up at um, Queensland University of Technology. That essentially is a device in which you can kneel on a board, put your ankles through a couple of hooks and do a Nordic, and it measures the the force developed by each knee flexor. So that's a, a really practical field test and, and we've got some nice evidence from a series of studies showing some association with injury risk as well. In terms of the structural measures, they're a little trickier. We've used ultrasound most commonly to measure this. Two-dimensional ultrasound is a quick and reliable method for, for estimating this. But there are, of course, more, more robust measures like diffusion tensor imaging through, through MRI, which you might see more in a, in a research setting. But I think, you know, with the development of this sports technology industry, we're seeing more and more field-based alternatives to measuring some of these things. And so my hope is that they become easier and easier to implement in clinical practice in the years to come. Is there anything on your radar at the moment or are there much more, how would I say, dirtier tests that we would do in the clinic that also correlate with what you've found. I'm thinking if you don't have a Nord board, what would be the next thing down that a clinician could do? Is it valid anymore? And with the fascicle length, is something valid like just doing a hamstring length test or does that become invalid because of all the other factors? If we start first with the strength side of things, I think the most important consideration is that you use a measure that is valid and reliable or repeatable. And so often I think we see people measuring things just for the sake of, of measuring them. And quite often with some of our clinical tests, that the error in measurement is actually bigger than the, the difference that we might see between someone with an injury and, and without, as an example. So we've got to be careful about that. But I think any sort of objective measure is going to be helpful to guide your training or exercise prescription. Handheld dynamometry, is, as a simple example, is something that can be 
implemented quite easily to get some objective measures of hamstring strength and track those over time through rehab, through training, whatever it might be. In terms of the hamstring length that you measured, flexibility or range of motion doesn't seem to be much of a risk factor for hamstring injury. There's been some nice work in this space. If we went back probably even five, 10 years, it was commonly assumed that that was a really important modifiable factor, but that's sort of out the door now. So these structural measures, these architectural measures don't seem to have a great correlation with clinical measures of ROM and and things like that. And so I think at this stage, we're probably limited to measuring this using something like ultrasound or another imaging modality, which of course can be a limiting factor in clinical practice. But yeah, as I said, hopefully becomes more accessible in the years to come. This podcast is sponsored by Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that helps you save time. It's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. With Clinico, you'll get everything you need to run a successful physio practice, like online booking tools, treatment notes, digital forms, customizable body charts, and much more. Physio Network members get 90 days for free now. Signing up takes one minute. Just visit clinico.com forward slash physio network. I'll push you a little more on this because I'm really interested having a lot of clinicians in our clinic who deal with, I'd say, amateur athletes with hamstring tears. So we don't have a Nord board, but we have handheld dynamometry as an example. What could be something that everyday clinicians could do in the rooms if they don't have access to that higher level of technology? And then I went one step further with, does that matter or can we just work them in those strength ranges and be confident that we're getting them stronger? Just pushing on that more clinical side. What are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. I would say that you've obviously got to use what you've got. And the evidence would suggest that none of our strength measures, be they lab-based or clinical-based, are predictive in any way of who's going to sustain an injury. But what they do provide is an estimation of the hamstring strength, I suppose, which might be an important piece of that clinical puzzle. We often see deficits in eccentric strength post-injury, whereas we don't see much of a change in concentric or isometric measures. Similarly, the eccentric strength tests seem to be more useful from a risk or a subsequent injury sort of risk assessment perspective. So my suggestion would be to, if you can, assess eccentric strength or lengthening sort of strength of the hamstrings. I think the second part of that question was, does it matter? That is a really interesting question because I suppose all of these measures are are useful for providing us an indication of the status of the individual or the athlete, monitoring responses to injury and training, but none of them are really predictive of future outcomes. What we do know, though, is exposure to heavy strength training, particularly in the form of, of eccentrically biased conditioning, exercises like Nordics, eccentric hip extension tasks, These are really useful and have been shown, at least from, well, Nordics and leg curls have been shown through large-scale RCTs to reduce rates of hamstring injury quite considerably. And so I would would say that from a risk reduction perspective, the most important thing is getting the work done. These clinical tools can, however, be useful for, I suppose, monitoring the effects of those interventions on these things that we think matter and perhaps also stratifying risk among a cohort of athletes as well. 
It's a good response because a lot of clinics might not have that, but they can be confident. I guess what you're saying is they can be confident if their patients are doing the eccentric hamstring work. And did you have a, a bit more data on the impact of that as far as risk factors or re-injury rates? Yeah, look, we've had a, a fair bit of interest in exploring the role of exercise selection in hamstring injury prevention. I guess the first thing to, to touch on is that, unfortunately, despite you know a lot of research, not just from our group, but from plenty of others around the world, despite a, a real significant growth in the amount of published research in this space, a lot of our clinical guidelines uh, around hamstring injury prevention are, are still based on clinical assumptions, personal opinions, which may play a role, but they're not always informed by empirical evidence. And I think that's the direction that we need to move if we want to have a significant impact on reducing these injury rates. So if we do look to the evidence, as I alluded to before, eccentric conditioning seems to be the best thing that we've got and there's probably a, a host of explanations for why, but the most important thing is that exposure to eccentric training confers a degree of damage resistance in the trained muscles. So that might occur through an increase in fascicle length or increased eccentric strength or perhaps even changes in the collagen composition of the MTJ. That's not fully understood, but I think that eccentric conditioning has to be at the, the heart of anything that we do. We've had a bit of interest in exploring the effect of different exercises on activation and these adaptations that uh, might be related to risk factors. We essentially see that knee flexion-based tasks and hip extension-based tasks give us very different patterns of muscle use. And so knee-based tasks seem to really selectively hit semitendinosus hip extension seems to more uniformly hit the biarticular hammies. Those patterns of activation correspond very well with the patterns of hypertrophy after training. So I think we can start to use evidence like this to be a little bit more targeted in our treatment approach. So, you know, my mantra is really that we want to target the right adaptations or use the right exercises to target the right adaptations within the hamstrings to minimise that risk of, of subsequent injury. Matthew, I like how you've you've taken us from the evidence and the research, but down into that dirt and that really practical level, right down to exercise selection, knee flexion versus hip extension. And you've gone a lot deeper on this in the masterclass, which I'll just remind everyone, if they haven't tried it, they can try that by going to our show notes. Matthew, thank you so much for the in-depth episode. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me.